The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way. All right, everyone, welcome back to a special presentation here of the Canadian Immigration Institute. I'm here with my friend, Patea Jafari. How are you, Patea? I've been better, Mark. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, this yeah. is round two of, uh, of a series, I guess you could say. Hopefully, it's the end and everything gets resolved. But at this stage, we're kind of in a, a, a tough spot. And uh, this is, like I said, this is round two. And if we flip over here to the other screen, you'll see here, you can go back and you can watch the first version of this that happened last July, um, basically on what it will take to get justice for from IRCC in Warsaw. And this is all about uh, a number of self-employed applicants that have been experiencing just a lot of difficulties getting their applications processed by IRCC. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. And then I will transition back to you, Pentea. And you can kind of get our listeners and, and the viewers up to date, uh, maybe give them a little bit of a background on yourself if they haven't watched the previous one, and then uh, give them a little bit of an update on, on what the situation is to set the stage. Sure. Uh, so my name is Pantea Jafari. I'm the owner and senior counsel of Jafari Law. For the past six years, I've been entangled in litigations of the self-employed program. Um, and if you didn't watch the first episode, I'll give you a synopsis. And that's that uh, in 2018, we discovered um, through uh, some clients that have come forward that there was something uh, amiss or something happening in the Warsaw visa post with respect to self-employed applicants uh, who were ordinarily being processed by Ankara. And so that's uh, multiple nationalities, it's Iranians, Turkish people, um, uh, Azeris, and I believe two others with a smaller cohort, but all of them are being processed, um, uh, were being processed in Ankara, and because of an internal shift by IRCC to manage workloads and volumes and back backlogs, they transferred that inventory to Warsaw, and what we saw was that uh, the process that was being followed by Ankara uh, which was to send uh, supplementary document requests outlining the specific documents they wanted to see in the program uh, and also the standard to be met that was being practiced by Ankara, which is that uh, they basically just wanted general information on what the person would do when they came to Canada. All those were turned on its head when it went to Warsaw. So even though internal um IRCC communications access through access to information requests confirmed that there was a discussion that um, senior managers spoke about the need for these procedural guarantees to uh, ward off litigation, to be procedurally fair and compliant, um, and that uh, document requests should definitely be sent out by Warsaw officers before decisions are made. 
Uh, we see within a day of the inventory transfer, hundreds of applications being refused outright, no further explanations, no further document requests, no opportunity to respond. Um, so those applicants litigated. It took four years. They won last summer in a, in a very uh, significant and uh, like, likely unprecedented judgment. Uh, they not only proved that the government made a calculated decision to deprive them of their rights to procedural fairness, uh, but they also uh, gave the applicants a cost award, which is really rare in immigration proceedings. It's, it's procedurally not allowed. Um, and in rare and special circumstances, if you can uh, demonstrate the need for it, the court usually gives, um, if it gives a cost award at all, something in the range of 500 to 1,500 or so. Uh, but in this case, they gave an unprecedented $50,000 cost award. Um, and the cost award, in my opinion, was uh, symbolic to denote to the minister that, listen, like it's, it's not it's not okay for you to be acting in this way. You knew that it wasn't proper to proceed to refusals without giving them an opportunity to know what documents you wanted them to, to supply and to have that opportunity. And so do a better job going back. Now, a lot has happened since last summer when we got that judgment. And Can, can um, I jump in for a second, Pentea? I just sure. want to remind our listeners, and I'm going to ask you this question again, how in the world did you discover these applicants? Because as practitioners, these are not all your former clients that you all filed you know, self-employed applications for and you were seeing these trends. How in the world did you identify that this was actually occurring? You know, Because so, often things are done so isolated that if there is any kind of a pattern like this, it goes undetected because you just aren't aware of all the other applications that are being refused on less than, you know, less than acceptable grounds. Yeah. So that's actually why this case is so important in my opinion and why it's something that I can't uh, just let die because it's a critical instance of uncovering what goes on in reality, probably all the time, that we are unaware of. So it is very rare that immigration practitioners have practices that do dozens, if not hundreds of the same type of application. Most of us don't practice that way, uh, but some do. And especially in the consultant world, some do. And how this issue came to, to my attention was there was a consultant who was um, according to him in a sworn statement, had over 500 of these applications in the practice of his history, uh, in the history of his practice. And uh, at this time started having dozens of refusals within a day and then another day and another day coming at the same time, which obviously tells you that there is now, you know, a, a, a systemic uh, decision to sit down and go through these applications and, arguably refuse them. And so he brought the issue uh, to me and all of the details that I am now aware of have come through six years of uh, clients telling me their experience and evidencing it and significant investigative access to information requests. 
Um, and I say investigative because, you know, lawyers aren't taught how to make access to information. Chris. There's a lot of things you're not taught in law school, but it, it's usually not even something that's part of our normal practice other than to get notes on what our client has been yeah. refused for. Refused that for. Everyone's, yeah. everyone's used to, but not in terms of all the digging about what the communication history was, what, what's the impetus behind X, Y, or Z, or what was the, uh, the draft changes to a particular program or whatnot. And uh, what I've experienced in six years of trying to do these access to information requests to get this information is, first of all, they tend to withhold what, what seems to be really necessary for your litigation. So I've filed multiple complaints with the privacy commissioner, but I had even statistics on the number of applicants withheld from me for four years. And then as soon as we won that litigation, assuming that they thought everything was over, it was released. And then presently I've been um, trying to get access to the number of applications in this category that access the courts through judicial review. And that was withheld in three, four, five different occasions. And then when asked tangentially in relation to something else. So every, I got, I got bunted over to different um, uh, sections of the government saying, I don't have this information. Someone else does, someone else does. Mm -hmm. And after going through three different uh, departments in the government, they all said, I don't have it. So we filed a complaint. And while that complaint's processing, I actually received that data set from two of those entities in relation to other ATIP requests. Hmm. So they, they, they alleged not having it. And then lo and behold, they have it and they're producing it to other people or elsewhere. So it, the problem is so compounded by the systemic issues that are being experienced both in the access to information system, both in the judicial system and actual um, limitations of what you can do through, through winning an application for judicial review, that it, it really has caused not only the applicants, so the applicants have almost all lost faith in not only the Canadian immigration system, but its judicial system. And it's hard as a Canadian citizen and a lawyer to say to them, no, no, we have a functioning democracy. We have a functioning legal system. Please keep trying. They've tried for six years. And it's, in my opinion, very clear that their rights were violated even presently post winning the case. And in the last um, podcast, I invited openly any person that's legally trained to look at what the judgment was versus what's being done. And I'm pretty sure a hundred percent of them would be able to say that this doesn't seem, this seems offside the court's order, but the process of getting to that assessment is foreclosed through the litigation they already have. Uh, they are now being required to start a new group litigation, which is daunting, exhausting, and demoralizing when they've already proven that their rights were right. violated the first time and yep. now again. And in this process of six to 10 years of litigation for some of them, because I've been involved for six, but their applications were pending before that, um, <clears throat> they have absolutely no money left. 
Mm -hmm. uh, for continued legal efforts. I've been working pro bono and low bono before that for years now. And uh, they don't have psychological stamina to keep uh, going up against the Goliath that is the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. It's an extremely tragic situation. And I think the main reason why I um, am on this podcast and live is to see whether Canadians care because they've run out of all options for what they can do on their own. I think it's now on Canadians to say, do I care about what my government's doing in my name? Do I care what the government's doing with my tax dollars? And will I get involved in efforts to get some semblance of, of um, belated justice, at least for them? I can't even say justice. There's nothing that can happen now to really um, make up for the years lost um, by these applicants in the process. There is irreparable harm to their lives, to their careers, but at least at least some semblance of fairness years later um, is, is yeah. what I'm gunning for. <laughs> yes, no, that makes perfect sense. So you were successful in the first instance. It was sent back and carry mm -hmm. forward from there. So there's obviously jubilation, celebration. People are super happy. Then it goes back for redetermination. And maybe walk us through, can I guess, what yeah. are we on now? What what is this round three? Um, this is multiple rounds. I, I, yeah. I've lost count. It's like round six, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I'll explain that from the successful judgment, there things went two ways. One is those applicants, what they've experienced in the redetermination phase, and it is beyond unfair and I'll get to that um, and then the other is people who are trying to rely on that judgment for their own case that weren't part of the initial group so this comes back to how do you even discover such a problem right yeah in the initial case which is TAFRA should be MCI um, and we'll put a link to it <clears throat> in the initial case um, we had the benefit of you know select representatives who understood what was happening because of the volume of what they're doing. But uh, the, the, the court decided the issue on legitimate expectations and said, you know, changing that process suddenly by the, the change of process from uh, Ankara to, to uh, Warsaw was unexpected. And as a result, it's legitimate that you expected things to follow as they did with Ankara and your case should be reopened accordingly. But how long that expectation is legitimate for is something that was arbitrarily decided by the court there because it wasn't part of our submissions. We didn't turn our minds to that duration. And we were asked that question live during um, oral hearings on the, on the fly. So on the fly, I said, I would think at least one year by the time, you know, the person gets a refusal, maybe goes to judicial review. We understand what the circumstances are, what, what not, like all of that would take at least a year and a half to two, but let's say minimum a year yeah. um, <clears throat> for people to discover through at least litigation that something like this has now happened in Warsaw, assuming that they wouldn't have necessarily discovered it through volume. Um, but uh, so the court made a, a, a judgment, a decision that six months is re reasonable. So they expect representatives to understand something has changed 
within six months of that change occurring, which, it, you know, so in subsequent litigations, there's a second group litigation trying to uh, uh, benefit from that judgment. And those are people who didn't know about the litigation while it was occurring, but they were refused in the same timelines and could have been part of the litigation if they knew. And so what we've done in the second litigation is we've um, evidenced what they knew about the litigation, why it took them so long to come forward and whatnot, because now not only the legal issue of whether six months is enough, because some filed their applications, let's say there's one client who filed their applications three days after the deadline set by the court, and the government didn't accept her application and we're litigating that. So the first issue is how long that expectation of process should be allowed for. The second issue is whether how long they took to come to bring their application to the court, having later discovered this issue, whether that's reasonable and justified. So in the second litigation, we've collected affidavits from many, many people that explain, well, even representatives that knew of this issue, so there are representatives who, because of volume, because of whatnot, were critically aware and they were in contact with our office, so I know that they were aware. Even those representatives didn't transfer that information to their clients. So where um, a client you know, was refused at some point in that same timeline or slightly after, they didn't say to them, well, this seems to be a big problem from that visa post. Maybe you want to contact Jafari Law to find out what's happening with the litigations. Okay, so- I'll, I'll jump in here, Pantea. So why in the world would a representative not advise their clients of something like that? That is so I'm material to the outcome. Sure. I'm Come on. Sure. Come on. It's a, answer. It, well, so I won't. I'll answer. Like that's, mm-hmm. I see that happen a lot. And I'm sorry, it's just bad practice. If you know that your client has a potential remedy and you're concealing it from them, you are not a good representative, full stop. You know, and you know, we, all of us make mistakes or make choices and you know, things happen, but we alert our clients when problems arise. And if there are opportunities or we see something that arises that doesn't look right, especially on the side of IRCC, we don't say to ourselves, well, it's a lot of work and I'm not going to bother. I'm going to move on to the next client. Not cool. So there, I'll say that, Pantea. So I appreciate you saying that. (laughs) And like the last podcast, I will let you say things. Yeah, I'll say things. Yeah, I will. uh, Someone who's actively litigating still these issues. But, you know, for what it's worth, I gave every every client that said my representative didn't tell me and I knew they knew. I gave them the opportunity to tell me why or, or contest right. that this has happened yeah. or whatnot. And um, they, they've declined to comment. Yep. They've declined to respond. But I'll say one thing. I don't know about the one-off situations, but if you're someone who's had hundreds of applicants in this category, presumably telling them of the issue and potential next steps would draw a lot of questions and calls and follow-ups and stuff. So I think part of it is also it creates a lot of work for them to saddle them with the obligation to pass that information forward and not necessarily fair even because at the end of the day, not everyone runs their practice like I do, which is hundreds of hours of pro bono work. Right. And they, they're not, they're, they're very business minded. And for those people who are business minded, every minute of your staff's time 
is valuable and needs to generate some income. And maybe sharing that information doesn't generate income. And that's why you haven't done it. And I appreciate your opinion, Pantea. That's garbage. (laughs) If you're in this industry, you're here to help people not line your pockets with money. If that was the sole focus, we would all be securities lawyers, right? At the end of the day, people have a duty. I think whether it's it's written into the code of, you know, within the, the immigration consultants or the law societies to 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 better your client situation. And if the decision as to whether or not to advise them is is based on, well, I'm busy, I've got a busy practice, it's going to cost money, that's a pretty crappy justification. So, so I think Pente, so I think will about be part of this litigation. Yeah, yeah. The, the second litigation—that's a critical issue. Yeah, because it, yeah. it's the reason it, it, they're why prejudiced. they require an extension mm-hmm. of time. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so it, the court will have to decide whether yeah. they're going to saddle yeah. the clients with mm-hmm. that burden and say, "Too bad they yep. didn't tell you." Which they usually well do. Out of time to come, mm-hmm. or to yep. say, "I think it's reasonable that I, forget the the." the representative portion, the court might not go there and that's fine, but at least is the client then responsible for being expected to know that even though they weren't advised. So a lot of the applicants that could have been in the initial litigation only discovered it through media coverage of the success of that litigation and then contacted us. And then they were actually quite upset to hear that their representative knew about it and you know, didn't say anything and join them to that yeah. litigation. Yeah. So that's one side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then derivative from that, there's a third litigation uh, just based on the, I'll come back actually to the third mm-hmm. litigation. So now let's go to the Tafreshi clients who went to redetermination. What the court ordered in that judgment was that <clears throat> the, uh, so legitimate expectation for, for legal practitioners is usually as to process only. You, your expectation can be to process, not outcome. But in a very unique uh, judgment, the court not only ordered the government to follow the process that was being followed by Ankara at the time, but also the standard to be met that was being exercised by Ankara at the time. So the court was very... Um, aware of the fact that the the government just basically imposed new standards on these yeah. applicants uh, without yeah. you know no notice fair process, yeah. without the notice and so said don't do that again right so post judgment IRCC has done that again not only to these applicants but to new applicants since which has now spurred four group litigations um, and I'll explain that. So with the Tafreshi applicants themselves, uh, everyone got the document request, but the, the entire point was that the standard was yeah. being changed without being indicated on that document request that I want something based on the new standards. So initially, the um, without a document request, like you really don't know because this program specifically doesn't set out those requirements at the outset. So if you did like a sponsorship application or express entry, you're very clear. Give me this, 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 give me cohabitation agreement, pictures, not more than 10, not more than 20. It's very specifically delineated for you what to provide. This program doesn't have that. And because it doesn't have that, what was winning um, legal arguments in court was that that 
degree of notice was being provided during the process, either through a procedural fairness letter, an interview, and or a procedural fairness letter. Okay. But then Warsaw didn't do that. So now uh, in the initial case, they started taking issue with the business plans and saying it needs to be much more detailed, much more this, much more that. So the court said, you can't make an issue of the business plan and implied you can't take new issues with other things. But so what the government has imposed on that group, instead of the standards to be met by Ankara, which was just general, tell me what you're going to do when you come in, come to Canada for this program, they now have imposed the requirement to quantify your significant contribution, to have an IELTS test result, all these things that aren't in the program and not in the document request that the generic document request that they sent. So if you, for example, wanted to see an IELTS test result as a requirement, not a suggested document, you should note you are required to demonstrate your language proficiency because yep. it's not a requirement under the program. And for example, given that a business plan isn't required and the court confirmed in post judgment further motions that a business plan is not required. So if a business plan is not required, how could you suddenly make it a requirement to quantify your significant contribution to Canadian economy if you're approved? That's clearly not something someone can do on their own. You need to do yeah. cost analysis and quantifications. And well, like even that. good good luck doing that mm -hmm. at all. Like, exactly. it, like it, it is speculative at best. Yeah. And I've spoken to business plan writers to say, even if they wanted to satisfy this requirement, like, can you do that? Can you build in a quantification into business plans that you do? And there was a lot of discussion as to, well, how they would do that what parameters and metrics they would use. So it wasn't even something that they could readily answer. They right. had to think And these about are professionals whose who's business, yeah, these Absolutely. are the professionals whose business is to, to, to do these business plans. Yeah. Absolutely. So not only were they met with a completely new standard to be met, being imposed on them, they were also met with a complete careless, like a reckless disregard for communications. So, for example, um, there were at least two rounds of refusals being sent out to everyone and then saying, oh, sorry, sorry, that's not a refusal. We meant to give you a procedural fairness letter. So when the applicant group is already super traumatized, is already entangled yep. in six years of litigation and then waiting for that and final. And they get that. Yeah. And they get that, that and then they're. And then when you get the procedural fairness letter, like they're not sure if they should be happy or not, because now right. they have all these additional unexpected further expenses because a procedural fairness letter, as you know, is something very legally intense. Then you, you usually get a representative to respond to it. And those fees aren't built yeah. into yeah, absolutely. what you expected. And then there were approvals that were then rescinded as being an error. So imagine the person that received that. Oh my that. goodness. Oh. At, and then you get a refusal letter and saying, oh, we're sorry. And then they, they were sending communications to old representatives, even though we've confirmed the new representatives. Are. So just a, a whole logistical nightmare in addition to this new um, standard. And that's why I said in the last, last podcast, and I repeat it today, any person, I invite you, I really do, I invite you to come look at the court's order and the standard being imposed by RRCC on the redeterminations. And you tell me if, if it's compliant, because I think 
anyone looking at it could readily discern that it's not. And I'm disappointed that the court has declined to hear that request from the, the applicants right now. The court just recently last week confirmed that um, lots going on. So I'm going to mm. f- feed in things as I can. Yep. Yep. Post judgment, we, we I, I brought two pro bono motions to clarify things that the government wasn't, wasn't clarifying. So like, what documents do I need to submit? You, you know, yeah. who does it apply to? All those things. Um, so we asked the court to clarify those instead. And the court was um, hmm. found itself uncomfortable to be in that situation yeah. and gave the applicants a second cost award to say to the government, they really shouldn't have come back to us for this. You should be able to answer these questions readily. So then the the applicants made a third motion, also pro bono, to say, okay, please, in the the totality of hardships they've experienced, please don't force them into another group litigation to litigate that the the minister is basically in contempt of the court's order. Um, And because the court had confirmed that it remained seized, even so in the second post-judgment motion, the court confirmed that it remained seized in case the applicants continue to run into hurdles with the minister in in their efforts to get this fair assessment at least a second time around. And so they filed this request. And the first time I appeared on this was when we filed the third motion request and the court had just said that we, we can't schedule it yet because the judge is not here presently, the judge had some absence from the court. And so the, the applicants waited more than six months for the court for the judge to return and waited and waited and waited. And then the court announced that it won't even hear the motion because it wow. suddenly de- um, took the position that it no longer had jurisdiction. Now, I'm not sure what the legal basis for that change of position is. I asked for clarification. I didn't receive it. But for whatever reason, between the second motion, when the court confirmed in writing that yeah. it is still seized and the applicants can continue to bring further requests, right? And the third request, the court is has taken the position that it has no no jurisdiction left to adjudicate. So now these applicants have to bring a, a new group litigation, having run out of funds years ago having been brought to this point even by the graces of my pro bono work for mm-hmm. all, like close to two years and uh, are now need to start from scratch on a new litigation if they want to hold the minister to account on what is palpably continued unlawful conduct. So that's the Tafrishi group. Now let's talk about the third group and the fourth group. The third group is... The whole point of the Tafrishi judgment, and in my opinion, the cost award, was to tell the government in as clear a sense as possible, you are not, it is unlawful to surprise applicants with a new standard to be met during the process of an application. And they did exactly that. So this new standard that they're imposing on the Tafrishi applicants to quantify significant contribution and IELTS tests and, and whatnot is the standard now being applied to everybody. And again, without uh, some are like the Tafrishi without so much even as a generic document request that 
gives overall documents to provide, but also specific documents. So if you're you're worried about quantifying significant contribution, then your document request should say, I want I want you to evidence that somehow, whether you do it through a business plan or not. But it, it's not there. Even for those that are getting that generic document request, and there's many being refused post Tafreshi and $50,000 taxpayer cost award, they are still refusing without so much as that generic document request. But then that document request isn't actually delineating the basis on which the applications are being assessed. So it's continued unlawful conduct, in my opinion, without proper notice. And so that's the basis of the third group. And now there's a fourth group, which is now the Tafreshi group coming back to litigate again the, the compliance with the court order. So it's a mess. It's a lot of work, a lot of litigation, a, a lot of work on my shoulders and my diamond. And, and we're talking about an already vulnerable applicant group. So these applicants are um, Iranians, like I said, but even though there are many other nationalities impacted and they are without diplomatic ties to Canada. So they are without a government advocating on their behalf. Uh, so, you know, when you see the situation in India happen, immediately there's a state to state interaction happening and an impact on applicants accordingly. But there isn't that in this situation. Um, <clears throat> and community organizations are, you know, divided um, often within our community. So it, it really is on my shoulders to advocate for them or lest I let this grave issue and well-documented, yeah, evidenced... Die. Uh, a situation of these changed uh, standards just die. And I say the importance of the litigation because I have experienced in my practice many other situations where the government has changed. And that's what I was going to ask you, Pantea. I was going to ask you what the broader implications of this are. Clearly, if this is occurring with this very narrow subset, like self-employed applicants are a very narrow subset in the grand scheme of of economic PR. And um, if this is the the kind of practices, and I won't dig too deep into, you know, what's really going on in the background, you know, which which officers are, there's a decision maker at the top that's making these decisions. Don't, you know, no one can be fooled. There isn't, you know, there's something going on in the background and this is just a a little bit of a, a battle that they've chosen to fight and disregard the court. Um, but yeah, what, how, how do you see this and the broader implications and why should um, any representative or immigration lawyer, consultant, whatever, um, why should they care about this? Why is this important? So in the summer, I experienced another really surprising change from the government. And that's in the work permit category. So we used to file work permit applications for self-employed individuals coming into Canada who who are self-employed. That that necessarily means you don't necessarily incorporate or or the like. Um, and Canadian business law uh, recognizes four kinds of business right. businesses. Self-employed is one of them, yeah. right? So proprietor, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and we've had success. We've got lots of Canada Canadian. Uh, PRs even now under that program initially. And suddenly the government took the position that self-employed people and the the work permit category is entrepreneur and self-employed. 
Okay. So yeah. That's the title yeah. of the work permit yeah. category. And they suddenly took the position that they're not qualified for this program. So when I litigated that, we JR'd the applicants, I, I took the position, you need to settle. And if you're not settling, then I'm going to see costs. And like, it, it was just so palpable to me that there's an error. An officer has made a mistake on his interpretation of this program. You know, it's right. clearly for this. I've used it for this before. And it wasn't until I got the respondent's record that I saw for the first time that their position is self-employed people aren't eligible for this program. Imagine how late in the game that notice is coming to the, to an applicant. And at that stage, we've already made our arguments. We can't even switch to say, well, that that's not the practice and, and whatnot. Anyways, all that to say, this is something we're experiencing all over the map. This is just an instance of it that's super well-documented and well-evidenced. Yeah. It's in everyone's best interest to ante in to help me get this case mm -hmm. to a significant judgment and a significant cost award, something seminal to say to the government, you have to give notice. Yeah, you, like, you can't do that this. Isn't the foundation yeah. of our legal system? Yeah. You need to give notice on what it is you want from people so they know whether to even engage in the process. Right. That's the, yeah. the, the worst part that you are not only spending all this time, money, resources to engage, to, to wait for the processing time, which is longer than expected across all streams, and then litigate, pay more money, pay this, and then to still be in this situation, to win a, such a significant court case, and then have it happen again to you in the same court yeah. case. Yeah. The My thing that's astounded me the most is just the department's willful disregard of the rule of law you know their their decision to just proceed forward without any check or balance in place just ignoring the court decision in front of them and getting away with it and you know as a former border officer I, like i get practice of immigration whether you're on our side or the other side it's not easy you've got unbelievably tight timelines you have annual levels plans that you're dealing with too, right? And whenever one application stream that's really nice and popular catches on, then there's a flood of people applying through it. And so why do we have so many self-employed applicants? Well, because express entry is so freaking hard to qualify if you're outside of Canada trying to do it on human capital alone. So people look to self-employed. And so the volumes, I have to assume, um, just started to increase astronomically this was where the pressure valve opened up, right? And uh, when there was fewer opportunities through express entry and these genuine self-employed individuals realized, hey, this, this program is for me. And the government, and this is just me speculating and you know more than I do, and hey, I can speculate all I want here. I have to assume that someone said, oh my goodness, we've got this workload here and ah, these people aren't genuine self-employed. You know, they're just trying to do an end run and, and uh, get through the back door when they should have just uh, rea realized that you, you're not eligible for economic immigration. You're either too old or you don't have enough human capital points. And, and now you're just, you know, you're just gaming the system. And, uh, and there was some player at the top that says, I'm not going to be bullied by some lawyer. I'm going to do what I want to do. And you can't tell me otherwise. I run this department. And, um, and I can yeah. speak from experience, you know, that's, that tends to be the mentality at times. And there's a lot of really, really good officers, but there's a lot of real cowboys out there too. 
And uh, I have to assume that that's somewhat at play here. And then even the court's decision, you know, I'd like to think our courts are impartial and I hope they are, right? But at the end of the day, there's a lot of different factors at play with this. The cost, you know, just the administrative resources that are required to deal with this issue. And you finally have someone like yourself who says enough's enough and um, is, is relentless. And they just usually expect if they can push back and, and create enough opposition that people will just drop off and they will just become exhausted and give up, right? That's the method. I mean, that's, that's the lit- model. Litigation tactic yep. that is yep. used constantly in civil yep. proceedings, yep. right? It's, yep. it's, it's not just, uh, yeah, definitely it, not. That was well honed in the world of civil litigation. Yeah. Yep. It, it's unfortunate and difficult as a Canadian to to be... In a position where I think that that's what's happening with our government as well. I'm sure because the the applicants have run out of money. Like if if it wasn't for me taking on and by this point, and this is why I think it's a Canadian issue, because I alone have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of my own money and lost income out of pocket disbursements and lost income to continue to try to get justice for the for not only these applicants for me it's it's a it's a democratic issue it's a it's a rule of law issue it's far beyond these applicants group and that's why i'm so passionate about it Mm -hmm. but if it's cost me that much and you know it's me and my staff Mm -hmm. whereas the government has three senior lawyers against me at every single call email and whatnot I'm sure it's costing costing them yeah well massive amounts of taxpayer dollars. Absolutely, yeah. it's it's and our so, money. It's still our money, right? It's still our money, yeah. and not to mention it's spending all that money. And I'm hoping to get a significant cost award against them when we finally get this to court. So not only um, as Canadians should we be concerned about what seems to be a, a very brazen breach of our most fundamental legal principles, but also that our taxpayers are being spent in defense of that conduct for years and years and years, and that 50000 additional amount of money has been paid out in cost award to date, and I'm seeking a million when I go back. So this, this to me is now a Canadian issue. Forget what's happening to immigrants. As Canadians, are we not worried about our government spending our tax dollars in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And there so, were two things, uh, I, two issues I wanted to yep. pick up on from your Please. your conversation. One is the IRCC side that they, that there seems to be some background polls happening here. It's mm-hmm. not just every officer suddenly wants this information and suddenly is refusing yep. based on these new standards. Um, and then the other is the court and their neutrality. So. They're both very difficult topics, and for better or for worse, let's dig into them. So in terms of some, I mean, the court found as a matter of fact that there was a senior management level calculated decision Mm -hmm. to deprive them of their rights to procedural fairness, right? So that means we had evidence that they considered the legal obligations and they considered the fact that people would litigate when those obligations are trampled on, but they did a cost-benefit analysis yep. and said between who would litigate and how many in inventory we'd get rid of, probably it's okay, let's move forward. 
right? Mm -hmm. And the ATIP that wasn't revealed to me in the first litigation that I have, which I think is a smoking gun now, and I asked the minister to settle the, the second I saw it come through my inbox, was that when the inventory transferred, uh, the, the vision was for certain officers to sit, like maybe two, three officers and sit full time and just go through them, right? In the third day that the inventory is in Warsaw, you see, for example, one officer refusing 136 applications in, a single in day. that day. In a single day. And these are applications that are spanning like four, three, two to four hundred. Well, that pages. officer was just really, really efficient, Pentea. They had right. an unbelievable so, capacity to process those applications. That's that's quite common, right? So now let me bring <laughs> us to the weaknesses of our legal system. So you and I, as you know, ordinary folks, when we see something like that, you have an eight-hour day. You know, you take a lunch break, you do this, you do this, even yeah. if you're doing it. Like back to back to back, that's like three minutes per application. That's we like we even have court judgment that that's not a reasonable amount of time to spend on an application. So that suggests there's some predetermination to have refused them, right? But because our standard of proof on bias and bad faith are so, so high, high in the legal yeah. system that. Yeah. I couldn't evidence that and argue it in the first case. I will be arguing it in this case because mm -hmm. I think now the evidence is just unequivocal. The, the minister has dug his heels in and yeah. doubled down on this conduct instead of improving it post the successful judgment. And so if we can't prove it, even with such significant evidence, then really there's something wrong with the legal concept and the legal system, yeah. in my opinion, that this is yeah. happening. And then in terms of the, the neutrality of the court, the, throughout the first litigation and in the beginnings of the second litigation, the court made very clear that it's not a neutral party. Unequivocally, the court said it's an active stakeholder in how this situation is handled because it has hundreds of applications before yeah. it. The groups have about 200 people so far, but there are lots of individual applications as well outside of my firm that people are taking forward, right? So not to mention uh, Iranians overall are the largest lit litigant population in federal court what's happening with study permits and trvs and yep. everything we're we're a population that is getting the brunt of seemingly disrespectful processing decisions by the minister and so that is feeding in lots of litigation and entangling all stakeholders in so many rounds of needlessly relitigating the same legal issue. You look at the study permits, for example, there, there it was such a huge problem that was coming forward one case at a time that there was an acknowledgement both by the court and IRCC that there is a systemic problem with the processing of study permits for Iranians. There was that acknowledgement. But since then, they're going through the same thing. There are hundreds of individual JR still to this day 
relitigating the same issue that's already received judicial recognition. Why should they have to spend all those resources and, yeah. and difficulties and hardships when the principle has already been proven and accepted, but is not being followed by IRCC? Yeah. So we're just, you know, uh, bogging down the court system, bogging down the FOI system, all of these systems redoing the same thing that's already been proven simply because there's no change in behavior by IRCC. That's why this is so critical to me. And I hope that my colleagues jump on the bandwagon. I hope, and you know, your, your uh, reach is, is to a different audience than my own platforms. Yeah. I hope people can see that this is not about immigrants. This isn't about Iranians. This isn't about self-employed people. This is about the rule of law and our democracy. We are internationally, we are losing our image as a, a democratic country with a strong rule of law that, that respects people's rights. When things like this happen, when we see sudden closures of pro programs without notice, when that was part of their pre-planning, you know, like this has happened so many rounds that I can think of in my own career that I don't blame people for not trusting the Canadian immigration yeah. system to, to participate in it. And with it, we're losing so many really capable and amazing individuals and families that could be the fabric of Canadian society going forward. So where do we go from here, Pantea? What's, what, what are your perceived timelines going forward? So round four, you're, you're just at the wow. beginning stages of, of that round four. So um, round seven, I would say, because we have seven, four okay. litigations yeah. and we did three motions. Okay, yeah. Um, <coughs> so how do you see this other, playing out? You know, and, and so, I guess on top of that, um, how can people help? How can people get involved? Mm, I appreciate that question. That's why I'm here. So what I have come to realize after all these years of litigations and all of these offshoot tangential litigations spurring is that the interests of everyone is aligned. Okay. The interests of all of these self-employed applicants is aligned. They, uh, in addition to Canadians and the like, but any, but for these applicants. What I have done on an evidentiary basis and what I'm trying to do through the courts is to basically join their issues and their experience because, and it seems that this isn't the first time the government has done this with this program even. So we, we understood the 2018 round of refusals because of how, how, big, like the volume was yeah. hundreds and like massive refusals coming back to back to back on the same day and whatnot. So it was, it was very discernible, but it seems to have done this again in 2016 at the Ankara visa post and God knows how many other rounds. And so what we've done is we've collected evidence from someone who experienced it in 2016 and what they did through it. We've done, we've gotten evidence from the 2018 cohort 
both people that were in the Tafreshi litigation and outside of it. And we've got collected evidence from people that have been refused since the positive judgment last year in a similar fashion. And what we're evidencing through that is that the problem isn't one by one assessments of these applications. The problem is systemic. And the, the main problem is that there's a design flaw for this program, unlike other immigration streams. And that is, there is no clear delineation of what the standard to be met is and what the evidentiary requirement is at the outset. That's critical. We're asking for a declaration from the court to say that you must have that at the outset because the litigations in this program previously that have, that have argued procedural fairness, every one of them that where the government has won despite the procedural fairness concerns was because some element of procedural fairness was afforded during the process. So they had an interview and whatnot. So the court said, it's okay. You knew at some point what they wanted, even if it's later down the line or whatnot. But what I'm trying to say is, no, that's not enough. Okay, so the Tafrishi had no notice and that was relatively easier to win. But even where you have notice, even where you get a procedural fairness letter, for example, because now that's what's happening, right? They're they're litigation proofing more and more going forward, right? So just for the optics of providing procedural fairness, you're sending, they're sending a procedural fairness letter and whatnot. Now for some applicants, six years after they filed their initial application, right? So imagine how unfair that is. And what we're arguing is to say, you need that information up front to make an informed decision as to whether to make that application. When you make that application based on your understanding of the program requirements and confirm with representatives, for example, based on my understanding of the requirements, my practice in this program, yes, you meet the qualifications, yes, you have the evidentiary needs for it, and you move forward, and you know that's now a financial investment, that's now a time investment, everything else, opportunity, everything's on hold. Any immigrant immigration application applicant will tell you what you're signing up for, that life of limbo in the times that you're waiting for that processing. You can't commit to new work, you can't commit to new projects, yep. you're not sure when it's going to be processed. That state is, is something that people make an informed decision as to whether to enter right. into or not. And to, to say that it's okay to put people in that state, but then later say you can only be successful if you can jump through these additional hoops is not fair. Yeah. So what we're trying to get is um, in the last podcast, I was asking the minister, right? If you remember, you pulled up the image of the minister and said, you know, if you had every wish, like, what would you ask him? And I said, make very clear. Oh, new minister. Hello, Mr. Yeah, we got a new person. He's here, Mr. Go. Miller. He's like so, the he's like the punching bag. Uh, I'll be honest, Pentea. Um, Minister Minister Fraser here. He's he's kind of did it, did it. He drifted off. But uh, yeah. for Minister Miller here, he's he's the punching bag right now. As as the and department, he's really, from <laughs> Mr. really, Fraser. yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. But um, uh, so last time it was the minister needs to clarify what these requirements are at the outset, like give people a fair chance to say, no, I don't want to participate if if I can't meet it, if it's going to take too long, whatnot. But now I'm beyond that. I don't think anything's going to come from the minister on 
their own accord. The court needs to step in and mandate that that happen. The purpose of the ongoing litigations is to get that kind of a judgment to say right. it is critically unfair yeah, to this change isn't a, the this is not acceptable during yeah. the processing of the application. Yeah. Like, I, I, I can't even imagine, like, put yourself in their shoes. You've, you've done what, what was required of you, invested all this money in translations, this, that, and the other, are waiting patiently two, three, four, six, seven years. And either you're refused without any further information and you're like, why? Or you're given that procedural fairness letter to say, now I want this from you. Well, if you're giving me 30 days to provide you an IELTS test result, which I may or may not even have actual booking time to be able to do, but I certainly don't have time to to practice for. But if I knew that was a requirement at the outset, I would have practiced for six months, done my IELTS before I applied for the program. Like that's not fair. And then to refuse it. Are they actually refusing for a lack of language ability? Yes. So if yes. they don't pr- prove, and what's the level that they've magically created? So they haven't created a level, but they've imposed <laughs> on on athletes mm-hmm. and uh, coaches mm-hmm. and things like that, for example, that they've deemed it reasonable because they're interacting with people and mm-hmm. maybe there there might be an accident on the, the squash court. They or, always or rely on that, yes. Right. Yeah. And so because of that, they are, and here's, here's a demonstration of, just how much that seems to be an excuse to refuse. Okay. So they're imposing that uh, requirement, even though it's not in the act regulations or the design of the program, the design just says, if you have language ability, it improves your score. It's a part of the selection factor. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We have a case of a translator her self-employed profession on which she applied is that she's a translator. Hmm. She has translated books and articles from English to Farsi, Farsi to English, um, and even had an expired IELTS test in the application package and expired by virtue of how long this has taken, not because it was was submitted. But the government said, I want an IELTS test result from you. And because she couldn't book one in time, and instead did a Duolingo test, the government said that's not sufficient and refused the application. And was there, the is there an opportunity to, yeah, yeah. Is there an opportunity, obviously that's a that's another leave in and of itself, but is there a, uh, you know, is is there an ability to request an extension? Like, do they, do they honor that? When you say, look, I, 30 that. days is impossible. You know, I've, this is, I can't literally, here's the test dates and I can't book it to write the test. Um, are they amenable to that? Yeah. Presumably I would, I would think so, but Mm -hmm. for whatever, and again, like these are people that Mm -hmm. just expected post such a positive judgment and basically be given the green light to come to Canada. And they're now Mm -hmm. a year and a half into it and still having to have these entanglements. Um, yeah. I mean, it, you shouldn't even need an IELTS test yeah, result yeah. in that situation. This this is actually a really good practical segue. So anyone who's who sat through and, and listened to this, one of the questions is what what are the takeaways in the real world right now? So as if they're if they're recreating the world of self-employed, and we're not seeing it manifested within the actual um, document checklist and instructions on the website. You are so intertwined with this. 
So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Can you give me maybe your top few documents that you recommend people now include with their applications that may not have ever been contemplated in the past, or maybe they should have been included but weren't required so people didn't? So are there specific things that you could point to as a practical suggestion for for counsel who are doing these applications now? You know, I've got another one coming up and, and, uh, you know, I business plan as far as I from the early days of hearing these refusals, like, I don't know, five years ago, that was a change. We include those now. And Journey Business Plans is is one of the sponsors of our Canadian Immigration Institute. And so I really like them. But but what are your, you know, the list? Like, what are these magical things that you're now seeing that are popping up on these procedural fairness requests that weren't anywhere on the radar before all of this hit the, hit yeah. the fan? So interestingly, um, Many of our colleagues are writing to me to say, I've just washed my hands of this program. I mm-hmm. turn away anyone that asks for it. And I, and I, I advise them not to go near the program. Okay? That's what but, IRCC wants, Pentea. That I, is what they I want. So. You exactly. look at the annual levels plans and they're getting way more applications than they have room to land. This is really, in my mind, one of the drivers of this. But Absolutely. I think they're trying to drive away the inventory. Absolutely. Yes. But the, again, they should do it in a straightforward manner. Open, but transparent way. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not get into that whole. Yeah. Yeah. We'll leave that aside. aside. Yeah. But, um, so IELTS for sure. And as much as, mm-hmm. you know, litigation has said business plans aren't required. Court has confirmed that business plan, but not a normal business plan. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking like sophisticated, sophisticated business plan because they're looking for for significant contribution quantification, right? Okay, but maybe just, should... I'm going to stop you right there for a second. So okay. significant contribution quantification. Can you define that? No, and IRCC hasn't. And we have absolutely no idea what that even means. So we'll, but... we'll use that as a heading. Okay, this is this business plan we've included you know, and there's the heading right there. Okay. Significant yeah. contribution quantification. It's built in to in the plan. Might yep. surmise would be okay. possibly relevant to that. Mm-hmm. But, um, and not to mention the 2018 round of refusals uh, where you had financial projections. The reason they were refusing was saying your financial projections are, are you know, estimations and not based on real evidence <laughs> and I can't assess it. Wow. Okay, so um, that'll be fun. Fun. So, but for me, the key that they really have no excuse on is provide evidence that you are either already earning fees that will continue once you're in Canada or that will generate once you get to Canada. Okay. So for that, we ask you to collect evidence of international earnings you have. So many people have like clients in Europe, UK, wherever. Um, And if those clients are going to continue on, prove that you have it, prove that they're going to continue, you're good. Um, And on the Canadian side, so before it used to be enough to say, oh, I'm going to contact this person, that person and run this ad. And that's how I'm going to start my business. Now, in the 2018 onwards, they wanted something called direct contact. So they wanted you to 
show that you've actually contacted those people ahead of time. So yeah. even though the application process might take two to four years, somehow there was an expectation to generate those leads and I suppose maintain them. Maintain for them. Four years Good until luck. You could yeah. Get into yeah. gear with them. Yeah. But now even that is being deemed not sufficient because they can't really assess whether it will lead to income. So what we recommend clients to do is actually have ready waiting clients. I will hire you at this rate yep. for this yep. amount once you arrive. Yeah, um, Almost a conditional and, agreement and on way. successfully obtaining permanent resident status in Canada. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we've drafted some of those, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. What a world we live so in. So in terms of how people can help, yeah. let's get there. I am overwhelmed. There's so much work to do for this litigation. I like for the second group litigation alone, like I said, I changed the strategy to now encompass evidence from all groups and people even outside the group. So I even have collected evidence from people who have not engaged in litigation, but to say, to prove that had I known this was the requirement, I wouldn't yeah. have done it. Or, you know, I, I really don't have the fees to continue, but look, this is my evidence. I should have been approved and whatnot. So um, we've collected 53 affidavits from a wide span of applicants and their representatives. Anyways, all that to say, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of um evidence. It's a lot of volume of things to go through in the argumentation and whatnot. Uh, for taf- for To give your listeners a, a kind of um, reference point, a standard JR, for our office anyways, is usually well under 500 pages. And um, the court will schedule you, if they grant you leave, for a 90-minute hearing maximum. The first litigation, the evidentiary record was over 5,000 pages. And we were scheduled for four full days of hearings. The second group litigation, the evidentiary record is over 20,000 pages, well over 20,000 pages. And I imagine it will be scheduled for two full weeks of hearings, all at our taxpayer dollars, all clogging all kinds of resources from all stakeholders. And we still have the third litigation and we have to go forward with the fourth litigation. So I'm hoping the court will consolidate them or will hear them together. Um, But I need legal assistance. I need administrative assistance. I need financial assistance. Like I've been doing this on my own back for two years at least. Mm -hmm. And a little before that. I need people to come to the rescue of the rule of law, not these applicants, not, not me, the rule of law. This is what it comes down to. And um, I was hoping that we could run polls on this webcast mm-hmm. to see whether Canadians care enough. I know there's a lot of apathy. There's a lot of injustices mm-hmm. happening in Canada and abroad right now that um, makes you feel possibly despondent, like you can't make yeah. change and, and whatnot. Yeah. But is this yeah, a jaded. cause that you yeah. care about, right? Yeah. Is this something that you care about, both in terms of its impact on um, the, the rule of law and Canada's image internationally, yeah. but also on how your taxpayer dollars are being spent? Because 
This, I think, is a discernible problem, unlawful, and I hope to be able to carry through all of the litigations to prove that again for a fourth time. Um, but, you know, your taxpayers are being spent to to engage in this un unlawful, arguably unlawful conduct in the first place, defend it through all these litigations, and then pay out a cost award at the end of it. Yeah. So I'd love to actually get an honest ATIP response back quantifying how much you know the department spent yeah. defending these these decisions. Well, like that I said, post-Tafreshi, every second of every interaction has been three senior litigation counsel against me at all terms. Mm -hmm. So if my office has already borne, um, I'm finishing quantifying this for the evidence, but mm -hmm. easily half a million dollars in yeah. um, what it has cost me to, to continue this litigation, then arguably and presumably it yeah. has cost the government two or three times. Yeah two or three times that At to defend least. it to date. Yeah. So um, I hope you will contact our office, first of all, and also reach, we're trying to reach the rest of the applicants who yeah. are going to have that extension of time window close on them if they don't come forward now that all this litigation is happening. Reaching applicants in the first place, please spread the word. If you're a representative, please take take heed of these litigations, stop litigating it on your own. This is the other thing we're seeing, even though I've written to our colleagues, I've written to our bar, I've explained that this is not just a singular refusal. Please take it in the context of what's happening of the evidence that I've gathered. They're still pushing individual cases forward, some losing against the government and building bad precedents for us to have to contend against like we did yep. in the first case. Please yep. stop doing that. Please, well, this is the same as, this is the same as, is the same as um, Chinook, right? People yes, throwing exactly. in Chinook stuff into their, into their, uh, yeah, their, their leaves and with yeah. no, no real foundation. And it's easy to get negative, negative, negative uh, decisions that, that yeah. make it even harder, insurmountable to, to overcome. Yeah. So as far as so, contacting, I'm going to put this on the podcast. Uh, I'm going to put this as a podcast as well, Pantea. Um, thank you. Maybe you could just let people know, is there a number they can call? What's the, your website address? Uh, those yeah. kinds of things. www.jafarilaw.ca uh, is our website. 416-825-0650. Um, is our phone number. Mm -hmm. And admin at jafarilaw.ca is our email. Um, please get in touch with us both to spread the word to other applicants, um, to spread the word to counsel representing applicants to hopefully take um, heed of these issues and the evidence, and also to assist lawyers, uh, legal practitioners uh, can assist with the legal work, admin assistance, social media, mm -hmm. you know, website developers. Like, like I've I've started a I've bought a web page for them, but I, I just don't have the capacity to then Resources, set that up and, and whatnot. So please contact us to volunteer, to donate, to invest. Um, I, I'm now actively looking for litigation investors um, because I am uh, very hopeful that we have so much evidence that the court will cannot turn a blind eye to. We, I hope to get a very significant cost award against the minister this time around. Um, and um, 
we just need assistance to get it over the finish line because I cannot continue to carry this uh, litigant group on my back on my own. Well, guaranteed that sets up a, a round three for us to see how things all play out for you. But Ante, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing this and for your fight. And uh, if me and my little world can provide a little bit of a platform and and uh, and get the message out, um, it's my pleasure to do that. And I wish you all the best as you as you fight this fight. Thanks thank so you much. so much for the opportunity to share this information with your audience. Journey Business Plans is the leading immigration business plan writing service provider in Canada. With more than 10 years of experience, Journey has grown to become a trusted partner for immigration consultants and lawyers. Journey focuses on preparing business plans for a number of immigration applications, including intercompany transfers, startup visas, significant benefits, self-employed, PNPs, and so much more. Their main competitive advantages are reliability, responsiveness, and overall customer service, and I can attest to that. For those of you who don't yet know about Journey, ask your colleagues about them. They're amazing! Or even better, try out their work. You can visit their website at www.jorney.ca and mention you listen to my podcast with the code HOLTHYJOURNEY10. That's H-O-L-T-H-E-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y number 10. And that'll provide you with a 10% discount on your very first business plan for new lawyers. We're so grateful to have Journey Business Plans as the title sponsor of this podcast. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holtylaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon, and all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian Immigration. Yeah.